Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, January 10th, 2021. The share ID numbers for Friday, January 8th are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,000. 155. That's 16155. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,156. 16156. This morning, A Vision for You presents Pitfalls in Recovery How to Avoid Relapse. The first members of Alcoholics Anonymous relied on a word-of-mouth program to stay sober. As the fellowship grew and spread to distant cities, the AA pioneers were afraid that their program would get seriously distorted in its constant retelling. They decided to write down what they had learned in a book to be given to new members. The forward to the first edition of the big book states, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely How we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. On page 19, the big book states, we shall bring to task our combined experience and knowledge. Essentially, the AA pioneers penned what worked and what did not work. What resulted in recovery? and what did not. The big book is very clear that the program does include musts, have-tos, and definite requirements if you want the full desired result. The big book clearly outlines the pitfalls of recovery. Hence our topic for this morning Joining us today to elaborate on this topic is Janet B., a recovered compulsive overeater from New Jersey. Janet is dedicated to working our 12-step program, which of course includes carrying this message of recovery to those who still suffer. And it's with great appreciation I welcome Janet B. to the line. Good morning, Janet. Hi, good morning, Leah. Thank you so much. Hi, friends. I'm Janet B. from New Jersey. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And today I want to talk to you guys about pitfalls in recovery, the things that lead to relapse. But before I do, I'll just tell you a bit about me and even more important about how God launched his search and rescue mission for me. Um, I first came into OA when I was in high school, already a full-blown compulsive eater. I stole food. I stole money for food, and at my worst, I was binging and purging six times a day. I had to have my esophagus surgically retightened because of the abuse I heaped on it. 
I was a compulsive liar and made up crazy stories, including cutting myself with a razor, pretending I was mugged or raped, going to a hospital for a fake rape exam, walking the streets of New York City with my rent money at 2 a.m. because I just had to get food. I continued acting this way, and I continued binging and purging for my first six or seven years in OA until I was introduced to the 12 steps and the God who, I believe, launches search and rescue programs for us addicts. For me, it happened at an OA convention where I was eating compulsively. But I went to a workshop where a woman about my age was speaking calmly and confidently about how she hadn't binged in a year. A year. I had been in OA almost seven years, and during that time, I never got more than two weeks of abstinence. Most of the times, I couldn't even make it till lunch. My bulimia had progressed from twice a week to six times a day. I was in awe of this woman, but too scared to approach her. I thought, honestly, she might be an angel and not a human. So I turned to the stranger sitting next to me and shared my amazement, and she responded by saying, she's my sister, I'll introduce you. So she introduced me to the angel woman who told me to read the first 164 pages of the book and get back to her. I went up to my hotel room and that night I read those 164 pages. And the next day I found her. She asked me if I was willing to do whatever it said. I told her there was one amend I wasn't willing to make. And she just asked me if I could trust that by the time I got to the ninth step, I'd be a different person. I said, okay, and shortly after the convention was over, I boarded a train from Grand Central Station to meet up with her and learn about how to apply the wonderful principles in this book to my life, and more important, to learn about God and how to have a relationship with him. And once I surrendered my life to God and committed to work this 12-step program, it was like a hand reached into my soul and yanked out the obsession. And by his grace, I've now been in recovery over 37 years. And in that time, I've learned something about relapse, what can cause it, and what to do to get out of it. So let's dive in. Okay. So I used to hear, it said, I used to hear people say at meetings that relapse is part of recovery. The big book, I don't believe, supports that statement. In fact, the big book says on page 120 that it's infinitely better that he have no relapse at all as has been true with many of our men. Sometimes what we're calling relapse is simply non-recovery. In my first seven years, I never got through the steps. I wasn't in relapse, I just was in ongoing non-recovery. The dictionary definition of relapse is to suffer deterioration after a period of improvement. So for our purposes, relapse is someone making enough progress in the steps that the obsession isn't there, and then going back into the food. I found 17 pitfalls that lead to relapse. I'm sure someone else could say there are 15, or someone might say there are 20, but these are the 17 that I've identified. Um, so number one, not moving ahead quickly in the steps. Why is it important to move ahead quickly in the steps? Remember, my problem is lack of power. I'm guessing a lot of you had the experience that I did, going to an OA meeting, crying, yes, I know I'm powerless over food, that my life is unmanageable, help, and then being handed a food plan and told to stick to it and call my sponsor in the morning. 
of course, that never worked because my problem wasn't lack of a good food plan, lack of knowledge about how to eat healthy, or even lack of desire. My problem was lack of power. Our big book tells us on page 46 that our first infusion of power comes at step two. As soon as we admit the possible existence of God, we begin to be possessed of a new sense of power. That's what I needed and direction. But here's the caveat. The rest of the line tells me I get it, provided we take other simple steps. At step two, we get enough power to get us to step three, where we're told that new power flows in. At step five, we get enough power that now the feeling that the drink, or for us, the food problem has disappeared, will often come strongly. And by the time we finish our amends, we're told that God has placed us in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. So delaying the steps is delaying the miracle of God's protection. The only exception is step five, which we're allowed to postpone only if there isn't a suitable person around to hear it. But other than that, we need to move ahead quickly in the steps. Pitfall number two, lack of humility. On page 70 of the AA 12 and 12, it says that without some degree of humility, no alcoholic can stay sober at all. I actually love the story of the minister's son, which we all know is discussed in chapter four, but it's also discussed in great detail in the story, Our Southern Friends. The minister's son couldn't move ahead so long as he thought he had all the answers. As soon as he conceded that maybe other people were right, he had a spiritual experience and never drank again. And I particularly like the way he was taught to pray humbly by a fellow inmate at the insane asylum. And here's how he tells it. And I'm just going to read it because to me this exemplifies um, how to pray with humility. So this is from the point of view of the minister's son. I get out of bed and go to the man's room. He is reading. I must ask you a question, I say to the man. How does prayer fit into this thing? Well, he answers, you've probably tried praying like I have. When you've been in a jam, you've said, God, please do this or that. And if it turned out your way, that was the last of it. And if it didn't, you said, there isn't any God, or he hasn't done anything for me. Is that right? Yes, I reply. That isn't the way, he continues. The thing I do is say, God, here I am, and here are all my troubles. I've made a mess of things and can't do anything about it. You take me and all my troubles and do anything you want with me. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does, I answer. I return to bed. It doesn't make sense. Suddenly, I feel a wave of utter hopelessness sweep over me. I am in the bottom of hell. And there, a tremendous hope is born. It might be true. I tumble out of bed onto my knees. I know not what I say, but slowly a great peace comes to me. I feel lifted up. I believe in God. I crawl back into bed and sleep like a child. And as we know, he never drank again. He got some humility. Um, the next pitfall is dishonesty. Page 58 tells us that the program requ requires that we develop a manner of living built on rigorous honesty. 
This means no cheating on taxes, no cheating on husbands, no lying, no stealing. Why? Why is it important that we not be dishonest? Well, first, dishonesty creates fear and tension. And on page 73, it tells us that makes for more drinking. Second and more important, whenever I lie, I'm trying to get something that I want or avoid consequences that I don't want. And what that boils down to is that I'm playing God. I'm trying with my dishonesty to arrange things to get what I want. So if I'm being dishonest, I may as well take a big magic marker and write the words, keep out God on my heart, because I'm really telling God that I don't trust his way and I'd rather do it my way. And we all know what happens then. Um, on page 146, the writers of the big book are talking to the employer of a man who's trying to recover from alcoholism. They say, when his wife next calls saying he's sick, you might jump to the conclusion he's drunk. If he is and is still trying to recover, he will tell you about it, even if it means the loss of his job, for he knows he must be honest if he would live at all. So no matter what the consequences may be, we have to be honest. Um, number four, not enough work and self-sacrifice for others. Um, pages 14 and 15 in Bill's story, we're taught how to perfect and enlarge our spiritual life. I would have thought the answer would be through more prayer and meditation, but we're told that we perfect and enlarge our spiritual life through work and self-sacrifice for others. Self-sacrifice by definition requires that we're giving something up for the welfare of another person. How much self-sacrifice do I need to do? Well, on page 97, it gives us quite a list. We give up sleep. We have our fun time and our work time interrupted somewhat. It costs us money. It involves going on hospital visits, sometimes having people staying at our homes. Um, they say, a drunk may smash the furniture in your home or burn a mattress. You may have to fight with him if he is violent. It may involve calling police or doctors. I think basically what they're saying is, our lives shouldn't be as easy breezy as they'd be if we weren't working this program. If I have as much spare time um, to do whatever I want, then I am probably being way too light on work and self-sacrifice for others. The fifth pitfall I've identified is not working hard enough or fast enough on our fourth step. We already talked about progressing quickly in the steps. But the big book uses particularly strong language when it comes to work on our fourth step. It tells us that we need to be launched on a course of vigorous action. It promises that our third step would have no permanent effect. I love that because that tells me that recovery can be permanent, but it will have no permanent effect unless followed at once with a strenuous effort to face and be rid of whatever's been blocking us from God. So what they're basically saying is turn off the Netflix and get those inventories done. Number six, not resolving resentment. The big book is very specific in mentioning this as a pitfall on page 66. It says when harboring resentments, we shut ourselves off from the sunlight of the spirit. 
we actually shut ourselves off from God. So imagine it's like looking at God face to face and then slamming a door in his face. When I'm harboring resentments, I'm doing that. And remember the word harboring means to be a willful safe haven for it. Of course I'm going to get resentments. I'm, I'm a human being, but I can't be a safe haven for them. I can't nurse them. I have to try to get rid of them as quickly as possible. Remember, if I harbor resentments, I shut myself off from the sunlight of the spirit. And then what happens? The insanity of food returns and we eat again. And with us, to eat, to binge is to die. So remember, my only solution is to become protected by God. So of course, I can't shut myself off from him. Number seven, not seeking to play the role that God assigns us. On page 68, I'm told that I'm in the world to play the role that God assigns. If I'm not, if I'm trying to control outcomes or results, then I'm really playing God. When I do that, essentially, I'm telling God to get lost. I got this, God. I don't need to do what you want. Um, And God, being the perfect gentleman, grants my request and lets me manage my own life. And the result of that is always disaster. The eighth pitfall, not living up to our sex ideal and harming others. Page 70 is one of the places where we're told that if we engage in a certain behavior, we are sure to drink or for us, eat compulsively. And that behavior is falling short of our sex ideal. Um, The big book is quite clear that if we fall down on our sex ideal and continue to harm others, we are quite sure to drink. I personally don't think this is limited to a sex ideal because in the book it says we treat sex as we would any other problem. So I think this applies to just harming others. So I feel comfortable in saying that the pitfall here is that if I willfully harm others without feeling sorry for what I've done, that I will end up binging again. I mentioned before I used to pretend I was the victim of a mugging or a rape. When I was in college, I told my boyfriend, who was in a rigorous program of study at an Ivy League college, that I'd been raped. And he spent lots of time taking care of me for my supposed rape. I had zero remorse over doing this. I never considered how I was harming him. I only considered my own selfish needs for attention. And of course, I kept binging. Pitfall number nine, not disclosing everything in our fifth step. Why do we even do a fifth step in the first place? Well, the book tells us, pages 72 and 73, if we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. The book expands on this and says that the reason some people got drunk was that they never told someone else their entire life story. They therefore did not learn the humility, fearlessness, and honesty that's required. So we have to do a fifth step because that's how we grow in humility courage and honesty and it's important that we disclose everything i had a sponsor once who at the end of my fifth step where i was fearless and thorough 
she just asked me to tell her my deepest, darkest secret. And I did. And I do that now with my sponsees. Our program tells us that we don't keep skeletons in the closet. Number 10, not paying money we owe. Page 78 says, we must lose our fear of creditors no matter how far we have to go, for we are liable to drink if we are afraid to face them. So we have to pay the money we owe. Now, this doesn't mean if I owe someone $10,000, I necessarily have to write a check for $10,000 when I go and confess to the person that I've stolen from them. Um, if I don't have the money, I'm allowed to make terms, but I have to be willing to pay it back and I have to make arrangements to pay it back. Number 11, letting up on our spiritual program of action and resting on our laurels. We are headed for trouble if we do. The book says every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all of our activities. And I think this pitfall applies to people who finish the first nine steps and are trying to coast. The big book is clear that we need to keep doing steps 10, 11, and 12. In step 10, we clear away the wreckage of the day so that we can hear from God in step 11. To me, that's mind-boggling. We hear from God. That's why we do step 11. And then in step 12, we help other people and we continue to practice the principles we've learned in all our affairs. So that means I have to continue practicing honesty, unselfishness, self-sacrifice, and all of the other principles listed in this book. Number 12, not working intensively with other compulsive eaters. On page 89, it says that working with others gives us immunity. I believe it's the only place in the big book, or at least a text section, where we are promised immunity for doing something. Immunity. The illness can't touch us. We are protected by God. I love that word immunity. To me, it makes me think of like those old episodes of Law and Order, where a diplomat from a foreign country comes to New York, commits a murder, but the cops can't touch him because he has diplomatic immunity. He's protected. Or as my friend Melissa points out, um, we get immunity from an illness, a virus, um, when we get a vaccination. We get immunity. We can't be touched. And that's what we get if we continue working with others. If we don't, we are not assured immunity. Number 13, not immediately repairing the damage we cause when we're inconsiderate or unhelpful. Um, on page 99, the book talks about it. It says, of course, we're not always going to live up to our standards. But the book says that even though we all fall much below the standard many times, right, that's why we have a 10-step, we must try to repair the damage immediately lest we pay the penalty by a spree. So if I'm inconsiderate, I need to repair the damage immediately. Um, for me, that often took, um, it happened in my family. And so I would try to do things like if I was overly harsh with my daughter, 
I would clean her room. I would apologize and I would do a chore for her. I would try to do something to fix it because I don't want to pay the price by a spray. Um, the 14th pitfall, imposing on people and lack of gratitude. On page 149, our book says, the right kind of man, the kind who recovers, will not want to be made a favorite. He will not impose. Far from it. He will work like the devil and thank you to his dying day. This is a pitfall we can all look out for at our jobs. Am I looking to be the boss's favorite? Am I just skating by? And elsewhere, perhaps um, with our sponsors, with our spouses, with our friends, do I impose on people? Do I ask people to do things for me that I could do for myself, even if I'm inconvenienced? Remember, it's fine for me to be inconvenienced. It's not fine for me to unnecessarily inconvenience you. Do I ask for help before trying my hardest on my own? We don't want to impose on people, and we for sure don't want to have a lack of gratitude. Um, and obviously, um, we practice gratitude by just looking at God and saying thank you. Just thank you. Thank you for all you've given me. Thank you that I don't binge. Thank you that my family is together. Thank you that during this time of COVID-19, there are Zoom meetings. Thank you for Bill and Bob who put this program together. Um, our gratitudes can be endless. Number 15, not knowing my own personal temptations and limits, page 101. It's important to know where we can't go either because we're too early on in our recovery, or we're just simply spiritually shaky that day. In this case, our book tells us we work with another compulsive eater, or if we're new in recovery, we find a way to be useful and practice self-sacrifice. We do this instead of going to a place where we might be tempted. If we're not sure, we don't go. Our book warns us on page 162 that big temptations come while traveling. So it's, they recommend to go to meetings while away in order to lend a hand and at the same time avoid certain alluring distractions of the road. And um, just one thing I've noticed that a large percentage of relapses happen when people go on vacation. So it's often recommended that people just not go on vacation if they can avoid it early on in recovery. And if we do go, to work with our sponsors to determine um, how best to handle it. Maybe more phone calls, more meetings, um, but just a way to realize and be mindful that for almost everyone, this is a personal temptation. Number 16, not resigning from the debating society having to be right about everything. Um, and I'm a lawyer, and I still needed to resign from the debating society. Um, we stopped fighting. We have stopped fighting anybody or anything. We have to. Two places right now where I think it's easy to debate are, of course, politics and food plans. And unless the food plan is mine or my sponsees, it's none of my business. And unless the politics or mine, or my husband, anyone else's is none of my business. I don't need to prove that my food plan is the best or that my political views are the best. 
We're here for one reason only, and that's to just help each other find God. The last pitfall I've identified is idolatry. Of course, we don't find the word mentioned specifically in the big book, but I believe it's implied throughout, and I think it's been a big pitfall, um, certainly in my life, and I've seen it with others. Just a basic definition of idolatry is putting a person, place, or thing ahead of God. On page 55, it tells us that we can block the fundamental idea of God that is in everyone by calamity, pomp, and worship of other things. Those other things are our idols. So sometimes people make idols out of our sponsors. We can tell we're doing this if we're not honest with our sponsor out of fear of being dropped. How's that making an idol out of a sponsor? Well, remember, a sponsor has zero power to get anyone abstinent. A sponsor's numero uno job is to help the sponsee get a relationship with God. So not telling my sponsor the truth is like going to the doctor and not telling him that my precancerous mole has grown back. My sponsor's there to help me, and she can't do it if I'm dishonest with her. I'm better off without a sponsor and honest than with a sponsor and being dishonest because God won't work where there is dishonesty. Remember, when we're dishonest, we're essentially telling God to keep out. And I've heard it said jokingly um, that in such a case, the sponsee should just like build an altar, put their sponsor's picture on it, and put candles around it because they're turning the sponsor into an idol. And how ridiculous is that? We can identify the idols in our lives by filling in the blank for the sentence, I won't be happy unless dot, dot, dot. And the unless is my idol. Unless I get a promotion, unless I get married, unless I have children, unless I earn X number of dollars. For me, the biggest idols I've had to work with had to deal with my children. Um, I've had to surrender my unlesses with them. I won't be happy unless they're healthy, unless they go to church. And here's a big one. Unless they treat me with the respect that I deserve. This is idolatry. And it's basically kicking God off the throne and putting that person, place, or thing on the throne. What's the solution? The solution to idolatry is to treat it like any other defect. To admit it, to surrender it, and to practice the opposite, which in this case is putting God back on that throne. So I've spoken about the 17 pitfalls that lead to relapse, which I've identified. I tried to identify the causes of relapse, but I wanted to talk now about what to do to get out of relapse. The goal, of course, is to identify our pitfalls so that we stay connected with God but sometimes we lose our connection with God. And in that case, our goal is to establish that connection again because only he can bring us out of it. I like to think of um, like the old days that we learned about in, in social studies classes where there were um, with the kings and the serfs and the big moats and drawbridges. And I think of it that the serfs are protected as long as they stay on the king's land. Because then if 
another army goes to attack, the king will put up the drawbridge. And as long as I'm on the king's land, I'm protected. But what happens if I wander off the king's land onto some other land? And then they hear, you know, I guess the watchman looks from top of the tower and sees an invading army coming. So the king has the drawbridges drawn up, but I'm not there. It's not that the king doesn't love me. I've just made a decision to leave the land. So what I need to do is get back onto the land to get back onto the king's land. So it's my opinion, this is just my opinion, based on my reading of the big book, that a sponsor should not automatically drop a sponsee if the sponsee eats compulsively. Um, there's lots of references to it, I believe, but in the interest of time, I'll bring up three now. In the forward to the second edition, it says that 25% of early AAs sobered up after some relapse. That's one quarter of them. Clearly, they weren't just left on their own to recover. They were helped. Number two, in chapter three, it talks about Jim and how he got drunk half a dozen times in rapid succession. The text says that on each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. I know that some people might look at this passage and say, we worked with him. That means someone else can work with him. But I don't think it means that. At least it doesn't for me in my sponsorship. If I'm someone's sponsor, I already know their history. I know their weaknesses. I know the best ways to reach them. And plus, if I've done my job right, there's already a relationship there of trust, love, friends, and friendship. If one of my sponsees relapses, I will probably be in a better position to help her than someone she's never spoken to. And if she's relapsed and means business um, and I just drop her, already she's at a low point feeling bad about herself. And um, it, it would just be hurtful. Um, the third passage is on page 179, Dr. Bob's Nightmare. Bob tells about how he met Bill Wilson. Bill worked really hard with him for three weeks, and Bob stopped drinking for three weeks. And then Bob went on a huge binge. Bill Wilson didn't just say, Bob, I worked with you and you blew it, so good luck, but you'll need to find someone else. Of course he didn't. He helped him. He was so tender with him. He fetched him home, and he tucked him into bed. So let's not do less for our sponsees than Bill did for Bob. Bill helped Dr. Bob, and thank God, because if he had given up on him, there may not have been any 12-step program. Okay, I said that a sponsor shouldn't automatically drop a sponsee if she relapses, but sometimes she should, and here's a good way to decide. I would want to know if the sponsee is doing everything I've told her, now, I'm not talking about sticking to the food plan, right, because she's just relapsed, and we're powerless to do that unless we have God's help. But is she doing everything else? So, for example, I require that my sponsee spend at least half an hour every morning with God because the only way to get a relationship with someone, someone with a capital S, 
is to spend time with them. Um, and I ask that they make a certain amount of phone calls and a few other things. If they're unwilling to do what I've asked them to, um, then I feel no compunction over telling them I can't work with them anymore. So if you've told your sponsees they need to weigh and measure their food and they tell you, yeah, you know, I'm not weighing and measuring because I don't feel like it, I personally, personally believe that it's fine to drop them at that point, not because they're bad, but because page 58 tells me that this program won't work for people who aren't willing to go to any length. So if I sponsor someone who isn't willing to go to any length, I'm actually doing them a disservice. Why? Because I'm making them think that this program doesn't work because, right, if they're not willing to go to any lengths, it won't work for them. So they think this program doesn't work. So maybe a year or 10 years down the line, when they really hit bottom and they are willing, they'll think back to Overeaters Anonymous and say, oh, yeah, I tried that, but it doesn't work. So let's say our sponsee is willing to go to any length. I first ask if there's any dishonesty in her life, and if there is, she needs to clear it up. Then I'll ask her to review the pitfalls and figure out what pit she fell into. Where is there a lack of strenuous forward movement in the steps? Is she working hard at self-sacrifice for others? Dr. Bob said <laughs> that the people who relapse or those who stop having a morning quiet time, have they stopped that? Is there an amend she hasn't been willing to make? Or are there any steps where she just kind of uh, didn't go through them quite thoroughly enough, just kind of skimmed it? Um, once she looks at it, I'll review it with her and encourage her to redouble her spiritual activities, to work extra hard in her relationship with God, her usefulness to others, and particularly in whatever area she stumbled. If there's an amend she hadn't been willing to make, she needs to make that amend. Um, I'd like to mention two things that don't cause relapse. One is circumstance. I'm sure we've all heard people say, and I have been guilty of saying this myself, I ate compulsively because, and then we listed a circumstance my lousy boss, my annoying kids, my manipulative mother-in-law. Oh, by the way, my boss is great. My kids usually aren't annoying, and my mother-in-law was very nice. Um, but circumstances are never, ever, ever, ever the cause. In what I think is a brilliant formula on page 68 of our book, we're told that we are in the world to play the role he, meaning God, assigns just to the extent that we do as we think he would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? So if I don't have serenity, even in the midst of calamity, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, I'm either not doing what I think God would have me, not surrendered, or not humbly relying on him, not trusting circumstances are never the cause of relapse. The second thing, um, and I say this very carefully, sometimes someone will say it's because they accidentally ate something that triggered them. The key word here is accidentally, as in an honest mistake. 
Um, early on in my recovery, I drank Diet Sprite. It didn't trigger me. Um, and one day, by accident, I drank a can of regular Sprite. Um, it was a 100% honest mistake. The cans looked alike, and I didn't realize it till I was done. Um, and I'm like, oh, crap. You know, I just drank a can of regular soda. I told someone, and then I went about my business. It was right before a meeting. I went to the meeting, and I was useful just as I would always have been. Because remember, our solution is being protected by God. What kind of God would withdraw his protection because I made an honest mistake? But notice, I've used the words honest accidentally. If I'm being dishonest with my food, if someone's eating something that they know or even suspect would lead them to obsession or compulsion, then the issue there isn't food. The issue is dishonesty. Finally, the big book explains for people in relapse how to prevent another relapse. On page 120, if a repetition is to be prevented, place the problem along with everything else in God's hands. I love that line. If a repetition is to be prevented, place the problem along with everything else in God's hands. We examine all the areas where we're doing the program our own way and begin to do it God's way. We make sure we're being honest, that we're living up to our ideals, that we're clearing up resentments and fears, that we're making amends quickly when we harm others, that we're spending enough time in prayer and meditation so that we're on the continuous receiving end of God's loving, never-ending, unlimited power, and that we're helping others to find and fall in love with and have a relationship with this great, majestic, wonderful God who supplies us with all the power and protection we need. And guys, that's just God's opening act. If a repetition is to be prevented, place the problem along with everything else in God's hands. Again, I'm struck by the awesomeness of those words. Place the problem along with everything else in God's hands. God must have some pretty big hands if he can handle all my problems and all your problems. And he does. He is big enough to solve all our problems, including, of course, our food problems. And finally, I think the antidote to relapse and the key to ongoing recovery can be summed up in one sentence on page 59. There is one who has all power. That one is God. May you find him now. May we all find him now. And with that, I pass. Thank you so much, Janet, for this powerful, thorough, and instructive presentation this morning. I'm sure it's been helpful to many. Thank you so much for this beautiful presentation. Share ID 16166161666. Janet's contact information will be given at the conclusion of the recording, so stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute. Questions only, please. And, of course, I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Simone Jones. Stephanie T. Naomi B. 
Christina J. Stephanie T. Yes, Stephanie T. Pedro B. Okay, thus far I have Simone J, Stephanie T, Naomi B, Pedro B. Anyone else? Jenna. Alana P from Pittsburgh. Alana P. Karen G. Karen G. Christina J. Jen F. Christina J. Jen F. Jen S. Okay. Got it. Simone J, Stephanie T, Naomi B, Christina J, Pedro B, Ilana P, Karen G, and Jen S. So let's get started. Everybody, please mute except for Simone J. Hi, I'm Simone J, Compulsive Overeater. Thank you, Janet. That was just marvelous. I'm going to have to go back and listen to it again and make all the notations of those pages. It was just fantastic. Um, I just wanted to, um, for you to clarify something for me. Um, you said something about, um, you know, if there's trouble with the food, that it's, um, it's actually dishonesty. Um, and uh, could you just repeat that line again? Because I'm not sure I fully got it. Thank you. Yes. So what I said is I made a distinction between someone accidentally eating something that triggers them, in which case I personally believe God would protect them because God knows my heart. But if I'm eating something that I know is a trigger food and I'm pretending that it isn't, then the problem is my dishonesty. I have to be honest enough to say, I can't eat A or B or C because it causes me to obsess about food. So the problem there, if I'm eating something that I know is a trigger food, that I know or suspect is a trigger food and not like telling my sponsor, my problem is really dishonesty. Thank you, Simone J., for the question. Thank Steph you. That, that clarifies it. Thank you. Stephanie T., your turn. Thank you very much. Um, wonderful share. Thank you so much. Um, what happens if I'm afraid? The thing is, I'm at the point in my recovery where I'm afraid of spiritual growth. I'm afraid of going further than, well, I don't know. I guess it's, I guess it's just that fear of, getting away from the norms of the old life and going to the ever-increasing new life. And it's, like, quite scary because it's, like, uncharted territory. So what do you do with that? So I can only tell you my experience. For me, I was a walking zombie. My life was horrible. And, yes, there may have been some fear about what was going to happen, but the fear and the knowledge of what would happen if I didn't change um, was greater. So I think that's what a real first step does. It just says, my life is unmanageable. So whatever God might give me can't be any worse than what my master food is doing to me. Okay, thank you. 
Thanks, Stephanie T. Naomi B., you're up. Hi, good morning, family. Good morning, Leah. Thank you for your service. Janet, that was amazing. This is Naomi B., a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater outside Philadelphia. Um, my one question, I didn't hear anything your, your, your sharing was amazing, was about where, do, where does practicing self-care come into this equation? This was something I was listening for, and I really didn't hear. I I got it about the relapse. I really got what you said, but I was just curious about where self-care and just self-preservation comes into this equation. So, first, I don't think the text section of the book talks about self-care. I guess I would put it on um, – it does say that each family should laugh or, or that um, – I'm trying to think of the word. Laughter makes, laughter is good. Um, I'm not quoting it exactly. And that we are sure God wants us to be happy, joyous, and free. But to my knowledge, I don't think there's any place where it says if we don't have self-care, it will lead to relapse. Yes, of course, we're supposed to make time for, you know, sleep and um, exercise and things like that. But I was just trying to focus today on things that the book very specifically talked about as leading to relapse. Thanks, Naomi, for your question. Christina J., star one to unmute. Did you call on me, Leah? It's Christina J. Indeed, I did. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Thanks for the great podcast today, uh, Janet. So, um, I didn't hear anything about this, but maybe I just missed it. If a sponsee has not even gotten to the fourth step yet, or the amends, or any of that section of the work, the action sections, uh, but they're daily doing their calls, their big book work, and they're actually working like their hair is on fire, and then they pick up, um, can you address, like, what maybe they should do more, or, you know, I'm just, I'm baffled about that. Thank you. Yeah, so in that case, I think the sponsor and the sponsee really have to, okay, so the first thing I would do is to really, as best you can, make sure your sponsee is being honest. Because if we're dishonest, we could be doing everything else and we absolutely will not recover. Um, Now, of course, we don't know if people are lying to us. So um, so she says she's being honest. You have to take her at her word. And then I would just really just kind of run through, ask her to run through the steps again. Um, what I might ask someone to do is, if she's done the first three steps, is to go through chapters two, three, four, and five and pause after each paragraph and ask herself, do I believe this and have I done this? to check herself to see if she's been thorough. And if everything keeps coming up, yes, yes, it's fine, it's fine. Um, At that point, I might tell her you might need another voice because I'm not able to help you. But I would really spend a lot of time and effort before I did that. If it seems she honestly is doing everything I've asked her to do then I need to see, is there anything else 
I can ask her to do. Oh, one other thing I sometimes do for sponsees who are struggling, I tell them to get um, an accountability person for each meal and to tell that person they'll be checking in with them and to give that person my number and to tell that person, if there's ever a time I miss checking in with you, you need to call my sponsor. And sometimes at the beginning, a little bit of extra accountability helps, um, but obviously that's a prop and ultimately the protection has to come from God. But I just try and do everything I can to try and help them if they mean business. Thanks. Thanks, Christina J. Pedro B., your turn. Good morning, Janet. Um, my name is Pedro B. I'm from San Bernardino, California. I'm a chronic relaxer. Uh, I get X amount of time, and then my mind convinces me to that it's okay, that, you know, that's the point. So, uh, I mean, it's amazing what you share, and I'm, I'm taking it to heart. Uh, I have an appointment. I, I just finished reading the doctor's opinion. I got an appointment to talk to uh, my sponsor at 6.30, and uh, I'm not going to be able to get your phone number. I was wondering, is there a way that I can get your phone number so that I can call you? Because uh, everything that you talked about, I need to address. So I actually want to answer your implied question because what I think your implied question is there's your mind is how do I get my mind to stop telling me that it's okay this time? So um, if it's okay, I'll address that question. And the answer is we cannot get our minds to, to stop telling us it's okay this time because we have um, minds that don't work. I, I did a podcast called, um, I think it's called Building a Bridge to God. And it, there, it, I go in depth talking about how we have broken minds. It's like the connection between our memory of horrible binge hangovers and our conscious mind is broken. So when we're in a period of temptation, what normally stops me from doing something dangerous, right? Like I don't run across the street if there's a truck coming because in my memory, I've stored, I've got stored data points that if a truck hits me, I'll be dead. Um, or for me, because I have severe cat allergies, I've got all these data points in my brain that, oh, being near a cat gives me an asthma attack. So if I'm tempted to go near a cat, my memory will generate a thought to run to my conscious mind to tell me that don't go near a cat, you'll have an asthma attack. But when it came to food, my memory would generate a thought to run to my conscious mind, but the bridge connecting my memory and my conscious mind is broken. So of course I can't remember strongly enough to deter me. So what I need to do is very quickly build another bridge, and that's a bridge to God. So I would recommend that um, when you get with your sponsor, you try and work these steps really quickly, get an understanding of what it means to be powerless, that our bridges are broken. But even realizing that won't give you power. Power doesn't start until step two. So again, I would recommend 
you get a thorough understanding of why your mind keeps doing that and then immediately move on to step two where you'll get your first infusion of power and then move quickly through the steps. Thanks. Thank you, Pedro B. Alana P, star one to unmute. Alana P. I'm sorry. Um, good morning. My name is Ilana P., uh, compulsive overeater. My question is, if a sponsee relapses at step six and has been through the steps before, uh, what's your experience, strength, and hope around uh, that sponsee being able to continue at step six or going back to step zero? So I personally don't believe that someone should just like go back. Oh, I'm not even sure what step zero is, um, what you're referring to. Can you clarify that for me? What would step zero be? Um, just, just putting down the food. Okay. And then step one. Okay. So I have a couple things to say about that. Um, so for me, if I could just put down the food, I never would have needed a program that I needed to get a food plan, but I needed to very quickly get to the point where I was protected by God and, and had power. Um, I needed to get to step two to have the power to put down the food. I, I couldn't put down the food. If I had been told you have to put down the food before I could start working with you, you know, I would be here saying I've been in OA for 40 years still binging. Um, so I believe we get someone to step two really quickly. If someone isn't binging this second, I can start working with them. And if they're a chronic relapser and can't make it two days, I can get them through steps one and two in a couple of hours. Um, so that's my first point. My second point is one thing I had been told once, which I think was the best advice, is that if someone is in the middle of the steps and relapses, they should take a day and go back through the first five steps, um, kind of like what I told Pedro or, or someone, no, someone else who asked before that. You take the book, you go through paragraph by paragraph and ask, have I done this? Have I believed it? And the burden would really be on the sponsee to find out where, where have I let up? Have I been dishonest? Do I not have a thorough second step? Now, if she says, oh, I don't have a first step, um, I really don't understand what powerlessness is, then we go back to step one, but we don't do it before. So um, I hope that helps. Thank you. Thanks, Alana P. Karen G. Hi, good morning, everybody. This is Karen G. And Janet, thank you very much. That was really, really helpful. Um, I'm a compulsive overeater from New Jersey. And I have a question about your comments toward the end about not automatically dropping a sponsee. Um, you mentioned that um, that willingness is important to go to any length um, and doing everything that um, 
that you told her to do. I guess my question is, when when in the process do you lay out your requirements like weighing and measuring food? Um, you know, because I just know from my own personal experience, um, the, the, my sponsor had suggested I pray for willingness. I, I, I said I was willing to do anything it took, but I think it took me quite a while to figure out what that actually is. So I, I don't know if that makes any sense or if that's confusing. Yeah. But. Um, okay. So if I understand it correctly. You're asking when a sponsor should lay out their requirements. Yes. And so here's what I generally do. I generally have um, a conversation, um, the way it talks about in working with others, to get to know the person and let them get to know me. And then maybe I'll um, do a little bit of work with them to just, this is how I work, this is what I do, and get to know them. Because remember, they need to feel safe with me. They need to um, trust that I know what I'm talking about as far as recovery and that I, I'm safe, that they can be vulnerable with me. And then after that, um, so a whole conversation, then we talk again. And before I agree to be their sponsor, I lay it out because they need to know what they're signing up for. Say, I require, you know, prayer and meditation, this many phone calls, you know, this with a food plan. So I just, yeah, I lay it all out. And if they say no, then I just tell them I'm probably not the right sponsor for you. And if they say they need to think about it, I say, that's great. You know, call me after you've thought about it. But we can't sponsor people who aren't willing to go to any length. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Karen G. Jen S. Star Hi, one. this is Jen S. Yes. Can you hear me? I do. Is, hi. Thanks, Leah. Thanks for your service. Uh, Janet, great to hear you. This is Jen F. as in friend, recovered in Massachusetts. And my question is about what you said about um, idolatry and parenting. And I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, Janet, um, as a mom of a tenaciously spirited five-year-old who I may be making an idol of um, getting that respect that you mentioned. Um, I'd love to hear just a little bit more on that um, this morning, if you can. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so my job is to just raise them right, and that's it. So I'm just, I'll just tell you some of the ways that I've messed up. One I can think of is um, I baked this wonderful banana bread for my daughter to take for lunch, and I took it, and I think she threw it out. And I was really mad. It was like, I did this. I went to all this trouble, and look what she did. And then someone um, in recovery pointed out to me, like, what she did with it is none of my business. So a lot of times, um, how they act is none of my, my business. I did the right thing. I was being a good mom and, you know, wanted to make a treat for her. And if she didn't want to accept it, that's okay. Now, as far as um, respect, so a lot of times I made mistakes in not putting up boundaries. Um, and that was, for me, it was out of fear that if I discipline my children, they will be mad at me 
and then they won't love me. And then when I'm an old lady, I'll be all alone on Thanksgiving because they won't want me at their house. So out of fear, um, I didn't play the role that God assigned me. And that was really making idols out of them. It was wanting their love and their approval more than following my, um, doing my, my part, which was to raise them properly. So those are two examples I could think of of ways when they didn't do something I wanted or when um, I was afraid to discipline them because I wouldn't get something that I wanted. Thanks. Thank you, Jen F., for the question. Who else has a question? For Janet, this will be our final invitation for questions. Brenda A. Cynthia C. Brenda A. Pam M. Carol D. Maria T. Maria T. Nancy L. Who L? Nancy. Okay, gotcha. Zipporah R. Okay. I have Cynthia C., Pam M., Brenda A., Carol D., Maria T., Nancy L., and Zipporah R. Okay. Everybody mute, and let's start with Cynthia C. Hi, <clears throat> this is Cynthia C. May I be heard? Yes. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Leah, so much for making this meeting happen. Janet, thank you. That was um, really incredibly thought-provoking and helpful and really has gotten me thinking, um, just, you know, refreshing my ideas of sponsorship. So I guess one of the questions that I have, and I go back and forth with this on sponsees, and I would love to hear your, your experience, strength, and hope, is are you reading the big book with your sponsees, or are you having them read it and report back to you? Because I find that I have, you know, very, I have limited time to work with sponsees, and if I'm reading with them, which I think is most effective, it takes a really long time to get to the big book. Um, I just, I'm wondering how you handle that. I know people do it differently. Hi. Okay. Um, so first, I don't think that it's critical to, like, go through every sentence with a sponsee. Um, I remember a while back I told them, like, let's get through the steps quickly, and then we'll get our PhD in big book later. It's more important to get through the steps. So what I do is um, I go through what I think are the critical portions of the book, the con the, um, like page 24, where it really talks about um, what step one is and the insanity. And then I just pick out, the, I've picked out the pages that I think are really important, and I go through it with them. And then um, I've actually made a recording of myself on every single chapter. And I just tell my sponsees to listen to that on the side. But my work, and there's plenty of podcasts. I mean, there, um, I know on Vision and elsewhere, there's tons of podcasts. So there's 
they can get that information on the side. But when I work with them, I want to go through quickly. So I go through what I think are the most important parts that will help them understand the step. Thanks. Thanks, Cynthia C. Pam M., your question. Blessed morning, morning, and thank you so much for your share. This is Pam N. in uh, the Adirondack Mountains in New York. Um, <clears throat> I, I really appreciated what you had to say about idolization of children. I could really use hearing some of that in relationship to marriage. Um, how do we apply this to our partners? Thank you. Okay. Um, let me think, because fortunately that, that wasn't a tremendous struggle for me, but I would think it would be the same thing if I, let me think a minute. I think it's the same principle that if I say I won't be happy unless my husband does X, Y, or Z, then I've made it into, I've made the situation or my husband into an idol. And again, the way to deal with that, I think is, anything else to identify the ways we're doing that. So it may be that you do an exhaustive inventory on all the ways you're putting your husband on a pedestal and then talk with someone, you know, your sponsor, someone about what what you should be practicing. Um, For instance, if he asks you to do something and you always say yes without thinking about it, then the recovery principle might be to say, give me five minutes to think about it and then I'll let you know. I mean, that's just an example off the top of my head. And then to ask God to um, forgive you for the times that you've practiced idolatry in that area and to give you the strength to put God back on the throne. Sorry, that's the best I can do on that one. Thanks. Thanks, Pam. Brenda A., Good morning, Janet. Thank you so much for your humility and your share. Uh, Brenda A. recovered in New York. Um, I have one of my questions has been answered in starting over with a a sponsee who has relapsed. And basically, if I understand, you're saying just to make sure that they are reviewing the big book passages paragraph by paragraph, and asking themselves where they find themselves at that point in time. Is that correct? Um, that That's one option, yep. That's a good option. Okay. And the other question that I'm confused about, because I get so many different answers online, is do I understand that you're saying if someone is still in the food, you do begin the big book study with them? Because I have normally ask someone to be free of their problem foods, red light foods, for 48 hours before we begin the study. What's your take on that? So, again, um, I've resigned from the debating society. So Mm -hmm. what I'm going to tell you is my opinion. And, again, I'm not saying that this is the right way. I'm just saying this is how I do it. Um, 
so I look at Bill when Ebby came to visit him, and he certainly hadn't been free of alcohol for 48 hours. And when Dr. Bob went to see Bill, and he certainly hadn't been free of alcohol for 48 hours. Um, I know other people, people who I respect, may do it differently, but here's how I do it. I would say to someone, okay, you're not binging right now. So technically, we can start right now because the goal is to get them to have an infusion of power. Ebby stayed with Bill. Bill had been planning on drinking with Ebby. Ebby stayed with him that day, if you read Bill's story, until Bill started, uh, you know, he started talking to him about God, started talking to him about recovery um, right away. So I believe, I, I start working with people right away, and I have found for the most part that as soon as they become willing to do this work, um, there's a great expression, willingness opens the door to grace. That if a person is willing to go to any length, a shift starts happening right away. And usually, not always, but usually, they're able to stay abstinent right away. Again, my opinion. There may be, you know, 90% of the people here may disagree with me. And that's okay. They may be right and I may be wrong. I'm just telling you how I do it. Thanks. Thanks, Brenda. Carol D., your turn for a question. Hi, this is Carol G. This is George. Thanks. Um, <laughs> thank you. Janet, that was like one of the most powerful shares I've ever heard. Um, you were so... I don't know. I, I can just tell the recovery was just everywhere. Um, my mm-hmm. question actually has been answered already, but I'm kind of getting to a new question, which is if you're working with a sponsee and they have excuses for why they're not doing their homework, I know it depends on the person, but how long do you give them before you just say, and how do you say it? Cause sometimes, you know, you want to let them down nicely something like, well, it looks like maybe you're just not ready, or how would you handle that? Thanks. So if they're not doing the work I give them, then then they're not willing to go to any length. Um, I don't let it go on very long at all because there's too many people who mean business. And what I usually do is I point to page 58 where it says, if you have decided... So it's a decision to be willing to go to any length. If you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. So I tell them that according to the big book, I'm not allowed to sponsor them. I am only allowed to sponsor people who are willing to go to any length. And so that, I mean, there's no hard feelings. It's just like I'm not allowed to sponsor people who aren't willing to go to any lengths. I'm accountable to God for my, my time. I mean, I don't say this to them because that, that sounds very like holier than thou, but I'm, you know, accountable to God for how I spend my time. And there's so many people who are suffering. So I don't let it go on long at all. Like maybe, 
one time they, it's not done, I say, listen, you know, really needs to get done. And if it happens a second time, maybe I'll say it again. And if there's three times, then I'll just tell I'm not the right sponsor for them. Thanks. Thanks, Carol G. Maria T., your turn. This is Maria T., Recovered in Norway. Thank you for a fabulous uh, share. It was really, really informative and informative, and uh, I got really got a lot out of it. Um, I'm just my question is that if somebody's <clears throat> if somebody's been on a certain food plan for a period of time, and they realise that it's not working for them, or certain food substances on that food plan are not agreeing with them or becoming more problematic. What do you get them to do? Do you work through work through it and get them to, to start on another food plan, or what do you do? So if someone just says that, I think there's two questions, yes. If someone says there are certain foods that are triggering them or aren't working for them, then obviously I think they should just not have those foods. I say, okay, if something's triggering you, you don't have it. It's like if... Um, yeah, so I think that one's pretty clear cut. And if they just say my food plan isn't working for me anymore, then they they can um, see a nutritionist and get a food plan that works for them. That's, that's not my job to micromanage someone's food plan. I feel like my only job is to make sure they're being honest about foods they can't have. And then obviously those shouldn't be on their food plan, but they can be on whatever food plan they want um, as long as it doesn't include their trigger foods. Thanks. Thanks, Maria. Nancy L., star one to unmute. Thank you so much. I appreciate your um, talk this morning. And my question is, um, are there certain signs that I can be more uh, on top of when I feel like my higher power is slowly fading away and people persons and things are becoming brighter and brighter. It's just so subtle sometimes. I can, I don't know how to stop it before it gets, you know, full-blown. Um, Thank you. More work and self-sacrifice for others because what you're talking about is a, a diminishing of your spiritual life. And on pages 14 and 15, Bill says that the way to perfect and enlarge our spiritual life. So again, if it's diminished, we want to enlarge it, is by work and self-sacrifice for others. So I would say to greatly increase work and self-sacrifice for others. The other things I would say is to look for any dishonesty, look for any amends that might need to be made, and um, clean up that stuff. But the main thing is increase work and self-sacrifice for others. Thank you. Thanks, Nancy. Sapora, your turn. Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Zipporah. So, um, my first of all, Janet, thank you so much for your share. I heard you so many times, and every time I hear you, I learn new things, and I feel, uh, you know, blessed that that you're my sponsor. But um, I had a question about self-care versus doing um, things that, you know, your sponsor tells you to do that are maybe not 
essential, as essential as your food plan. So obviously, I would never, ever choose self-care over not eating an abstinent meal because I think that's just absolutely paramount. But let's say you've got to do your half an hour of quiet time in the morning and you have severe insomnia and you have, you know, uh, an appointment with work very early that you can't miss or you'll get fired. Um, and you have two hours to sleep and your sponsor tells you she wants you to do the half an hour in the morning. Um, and you know, you can potentially push yourself to the, you know, umph degree to do your half an hour in the morning or make the decision of, you know what, I really need at least two hours of sleep to function today. Let me just do my, you know, half an hour later. Like how important is it to, to go to any lengths, as you say, uh, to, to do the, 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 the morning, uh, you know, prayer, meditation, quiet time versus just to take the time to sleep so you could function better and then just do the half an hour later. So I would say in a situation like that, a person should work with their sponsor because um, the sponsor knows the particular ins and outs. So to give a blanket answer to that really um, isn't fair. So for instance, one person might have insomnia because um, they're sitting there watching Netflix on their screen and so that causes insomnia. The other might because they're stressed. The other might because of a physical condition. So I think in a case like that, um, a person should just be honest with their sponsor and work it out with their sponsor. Thank you. Thanks, Sapora. Okay, we have time for one or two more questions. Anyone else with a question on their mind? Jennifer C. Jennifer C. Anybody else? Marcia B. And Pete B. Jennifer C. And Pete B. Go ahead, Jennifer. Good morning, Janet. Um, thank you so much uh, for that. I'll be calling you. <laughs> I'll be calling you today. Um, two questions. One related to the dishonesty. I'm curious about how that's addressed through the steps. So, if someone has dishonesty in their lives um, that's not related to resentment, that's not related to a fear necessarily. Even though I know that you said that dishonesty is fear. So if 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 uh, if the person doesn't recognize it as a fear initially, but they just know that there's dishonesty there, how is that addressed in the steps? And then I guess my step two question is just curious. You put a lot of emphasis on step two, which I really appreciate, and you talked a lot about how, you know, that is really the first connection and infusion. You use the word infusion um, with power, which um, – can you elaborate on that a little bit in terms of how you work sponsees through step two? Are there any specific assignments that you give um, to really hone in on that step two experience? Thanks so much. Okay. okay. Two, really, two really great questions. So first, honesty is addressed on page 58 where it talks about we have to um, develop a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. So th it's all through the book, if you go through the text section, there's so much about honesty and how it's required and why it's required, that it's basically without honesty, we shouldn't even bother. Um, the second question, what a great question, step two. Um, so I generally go through 
the beginning of chapter four with them. And there's one particular paragraph that lists about five or six different prejudices that people have against God. It's a prejudice that ends, um, there was a feeling with awe and wonder, and, but it was fleeting and soon lost. And in there, it talks about, um, so some of the different prejudices are things like the concept of God we were given as children isn't good enough. Um, if there was a God, he wouldn't run the universe so poorly. Um, people who tend to believe in God aren't very nice. So they're all kind of buried in that paragraph. So I actually go through that with my sponsees and then ask them to look at the different prejudices they have against God. And that's usually really helpful because if they see um, how they're looking at God askew and the prejudices, that helps them to develop a working relationship with a God that they can get on board with. Thanks. Thank you, Jennifer C. Our final question for the morning comes from Pete B. Oh, thank you so much. My name is Pete B. I'm a compulsive overeater recovered today by God's grace and mercy. Janet, thanks so much for the presentation. It was deep and heavy. I really appreciate it. I, 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 I keep on wondering, where is these, this list of assignments that people keep talking about? Is there, like a, is there like some pamphlet or something that has these assignments that, 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 that people speak of? Thank you. Well, I'm not sure when you say what people speak of because I was pretty much the only one speaking today, so I'm not quite sure um, what you mean. What are what are what are the assignments that you're describing? You said you, you oh, give those are assignments, assignment. right? That I give to my sponsees. Are there are they are are they like known anywhere? Like are they listed someplace? So would you would you mind sharing them? Um, I'm happy I'm happy to share them. I actually I put together a um, I'm in the process of finishing just. To my sponsees, I just give them a little manual of how I sponsored them that they can use if they want to work with their sponsees. So it's in the final stages of getting proofed and all that by a friend of mine. And when that's done, I'm happy to share it. With, um, I share it with my sponsees. But if you want to um, call me and ask me for what I do with my sponsees or email me, I'm happy to help you. Or not, I don't want to say like help you, but I'm happy to let you know what I do. Thanks, Pete, for the question. Thanks to everybody who posed questions this morning. And of course, thank you so much, Janet, for your compelling, stimulating, and thought provoking presentation this morning. I'm sure very helpful to so many on the line and beyond, as of course this is recorded. Share ID. For this presentation, 16,166, 16166. We're going to close now from page 164 in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. 
Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order, but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.